Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. Support for the podcast also comes from Elsa's. Elsa's is now welcoming you inside for good drinks, good food, and good conversation in the heart of the Plateau Montréal. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likefillpodcast.com. Without further ado, Here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Lakeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, it's my great pleasure and honor again to be talking with my friend, the author Matthew Mather, about his new novel. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here. So I, I get to jump right in with this. Uh, you have done so many different topics uh, in your books. How many books have you written now? I lost track. Actually, I think I'm. Uh, I think this is my seventeenth novel. Jesus, yeah. wow! Uh, so, and you are sorry. We're going to be having a little bit of spoilers. We'll try and avoid having too many in this conversation. But uh, Matthew's new book is going to be tackling, among other things, uh, aliens. <laughs> so this is a very hot topic at the moment. We have the American. Congress is investigating UFOs and people are talking about this. So what do you think about aliens? Do they exist? If they do, what are they? What are UFOs? What are your thoughts on it? I know you've given a great deal of thought to this subject. So, Yeah. Well, this is, and I'm just going to say just for everybody listening that um, John and I um, spent during the pandemic, we went up on the mountain and walked up and down the mountain because it was about the only thing that we could do. And, yeah, it's like once every day or two. Or, you know. Yeah, <laughs> and we actually talked about this book, and, and John was kind of a helped me architect the uh, the things that are happening in this book. And and the to- and so there's a lot of a lot of the material in there is, is things that we've uh, we talked about. Um, and one of the reasons, and so I've written 17 novels, and I've done a lot of tech thrillers and um, uh, apocalyptic novels. Um, and so, as I've gotten, you know, into getting up towards 20 books written, um, I kind of one of the only things I hadn't tackled yet was was the idea of uh, of aliens. So that was uh, something we're bringing up in this. Although every time I write books, I always try to write something. Um, you know, what are the things that bother me about other books in this topic? And and in the past, I wrote one about time travel, and I wrote how, you know, time travel books don't make any sense to me, because if you travel back in time, even, you know, that we're traveling at, you know, uh, you know 30 or 40, you know, miles per second through space, that even if you travel one second back in time, you'll end up in a completely different place in space. Um, so when we're talking about aliens... Uh, I said, what are the things that don't make any sense to me about aliens? And and this is a hot topic right now, as John said, talking about, um, you know, that's uh, up at, they're talking about it in Congress and UFOs, are they real? One thing never made sense to me is if you are an alien 
And you have the ability to travel between the stars and probably superluminal travel if you're traveling here in a meat body, like in the flesh and blood bag of bones that, that, that we are. That we are. Um, why would you bother letting yourself be seen by humans here? You know, we already have the technology to have cloaking, uh, you know, metamaterials that can make us invisible to, uh, to enemies. Uh, you can put this cloaking materials around tanks on a battlefield. You know, and this is pretty primitive technology. Any any alien species that was going to come here would have very easily the technology to be able to hide themselves completely from us. Um, so, I mean, the first question is, why would they let us see them? Why wouldn't they cloak themselves? You know, and that's just that's just the beginning uh, part of it. <clears throat> um, and why would they be like comparable size to us? Like, why wouldn't they be like like ants or or like giants or like like well, they, there's also the idea that they always seem to look vaguely humanoid and anthropomorphic or at least like like approximately our size right which is which is not at all obvious like why would they why wouldn't they be as big as whales or, or as small as bacteria like well i think probably um well the anthropic principle is you know that we're only here because you know, because we actually are here and there's an unlimited number of reasons for, um, you know, that uh, things that have converged to make us actually here. So knowing that we exist in the format that we're in makes it seem more obvious that, uh, that aliens would be in a similar sort of package. But I think on that topic, you know, there are things like convergent evolution, you know, that eyes will always tend to develop. And, um, and I do think that, in terms of convergent evolution, probably other species that would arise around other planets that are going to become intelligent would probably have, you know, digits that would be able to manipulate things and probably have eyes and 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 might be they would probably end up um, evolving on a rocky planet with water because the water is is this sort of the universal solvent that we use for life here. So I think there's a pretty good chance that that aliens might look roughly like us because. I think there's probably some principles of convergent evolution at play. So I don't, I don't think that's unreasonable. The thing that I do think is unreasonable, though, is that as, and this is one of the things we, the, well, what I bring up in the book is, um, why would aliens come here in their meat bodies? You know, like if, I think very rapidly, and this has been topic in some of my other books, um, very rapidly humans and machines are, you know, merging, even as we speak now, like that, you know, if somebody takes away your cell phone or takes away your Facebook page, you're going to feel like part of you is gone. Like part part of ourselves are already part of our digital selves. And I think over the next couple of generations and century or two, um, that humans and machines will merge and will become, you know, will become digital organisms. And at that point, why would you bother transporting yourself across vast reaches of space in a in a physical body? You would probably be transporting yourself as a, you know, as a digital life form and, uh, that's that's the form of the aliens that we encounter in this novel. Although I don't want to give away too much, but yeah, uh, no, I, no that, that makes sense. And you know, the idea of you know one of the questions that we we talked about a lot in our mountain walks was, you know, why would why would a superior life form with you know high levels of intelligence and stuff like that, why would they come here? Like they don't like you. And I remember I I said, well, maybe they want our water or our diamonds. And you're like, no dude, like there's entire planets with, that are filled with diamonds and there's like clouds and comets and asteroids that have all of the iron and water and anything well, you could want. Like exactly. I mean, 
that's another thing. Whenever I watch uh, these alien invasion, you know, like why would they invade? You know, when they've got, you know, we've got some movies where they're they're sucking out our oceans, but there are there's literally unlimited amounts of water frozen in comets. You know, in our Oort cloud, um, there are. Um, you know, there's the they're talking about doing asteroid mining now because there are asteroids floating out there that are, you know, made of solid platinum. Not solid platinum, but there's there's a there's an infinite amount of natural resources floating in asteroids and comets and all this sort of stuff. That's just around our star. And there's literally, you know, the same type of materials floating just about around every star out there. So there's no reason for any you know, alien species. What to, was it that, that, that like, like theorem or whatever you told oh, me about Drake, oh, the Drake equation? Yeah. Well, that that's going back to uh, you know, <clears throat> I mean, if we're gonna sort of reverse and talk um, uh, about uh, Drake Drake equation and Fermi paradox, Drake Drake's equation is trying to estimate how many intelligent species would there would be in say our galaxy. So Drake and, and Drake was a famous. Um, a cosmologist, but anyway, he was a cosmologist back in the 1950s, and he put forward this equation saying, "We've got say 100 billion stars in our um, in our galaxy. How many of those stars would have rocky planets? How many of those rocky planets would have um, would be in the habitable zone where you'd have liquid water? And then how many of those would have um, uh, would have life arise on it? And then how many of those that have life arise on it would get intelligent life? And then how many would form technological civilizations? And then how long would that technological civilization last? Would they just burn out after 100 years, 200 years and destroy themselves? Or would they be around for a lot longer? If you multiply all those things out, you'd end up with the end result of how many technological civilizations are currently alive and active and staring up at us as we are staring up at our own sky. Um, And back when they first put this equation forward in the 50s, they had no idea if there were rocky planets around other stars or how many stars or how many of those planets were in the habitable zone. But now fast forward 60 years, um, we know that, you know, almost every star over our heads has rocky planets around it or the vast majority do. And that about half of those have rocky planets that are inside the habitable zone. Um, and so now we've actually got some of their answers to the Drake's Drake equation. Um, and I think, uh, and this is another thing we talked about is like, how does, does life move around between the stars? And I think that life actually, just like, you know, little islands out in the South Pacific end up getting flotsam and jetsam, you know, um, you know, coming from one to the other. I think that probably all, you know, the vast majority of stars over our heads, I think are just teeming with life. And so then the question becomes, why do we, and this is a Fermi paradox, if the universe out there is teeming with life, and if it's not all that unusual that intelligent life would form, then why are we not talking to anybody else? Or why can't we even detect anybody else out there? Uh, those, are, those are some of the topics that we, we brought up. And so in the context of this book, I'm answering those questions of why. <laughs> of why <laughs> yeah, this, and I, I'm, not gonna, I'm not going to spoil it, but can't, it, can't is, it, it is an absolutely, I think for, for sci-fi nerds and, and people who are into this stuff, I think it's... It's an incredibly novel explanation for why this could could happen, and it just it makes sense. Like, because a lot of people, even people I know, are really into this genre, like crazy. You know, you look at things like The Matrix, and like, there's all sorts of cool things about the story. But seriously, farming us for batteries 
That's just so completely. Was, there's so many other. That was a bit of a letdown in terms yeah, of storytelling. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's it's <laughs> just like oh come on, fuck off. Like that doesn't make any sense. Like it's very often the explanation for why they would be there, right? I mean, that's always the they, they always end up being either sort of taking human justifications for colonization and imperialism on Earth and kind of making the aliens the colonizing people, right? So taking the motivations of of colonizers that wanted to get slaves or gold or natural resources of some kind, like taking those motivations and, and imputing it to these aliens, uh, which, as you say, doesn't make sense because we don't have anything that they would want. We don't have want. anything they want, unless yeah. they wanted to come here and just torture us, like picking <laughs> legs off a grasshopper, which... Which is very possible, you know, like that. I could see that as being a reason if they were sadistic aliens, but you know, or sadistic, or or they were, or maybe just, just like bored. Just bored, yeah, just bored. I mean, like there's um, people go to people from very advanced civilizations on a regular basis go to poor third world countries and back because, or or even just people who are. You know, multimillionaires go and live in a tent with their family like, for a week. Tourism, they go camping. Sort of ecotourism. I could, I could, I could see that as as being a, as being a reason, but it still wouldn't explain why they would let us see UFOs. Uh, you know, like seeing these lights in the sky and the UFOs and all this sort of stuff doesn't doesn't make any sense. Like, if they wanted to come here, either they would they would, you know let us know that they were here or they would hide and do whatever it is that they're doing. It really uh, makes no sense that they would sort of flash, flash us a little bit of leg, but not really like, <laughs> not really let us see the full show or something. Yeah. It's Ricky Gervais and his new, uh, his new special. It just came out on Netflix, uh, Supernature. He talks about like all these ghost hunter shows that everything. And yeah, he's like, so. how come they always get this grainy, picture it's like in the background it looks like a photo effect that you can do with an instagram app like it just looks like and he said you know imagine if all nature shows done by like david attenborough were like oh and here you can see just the tip of the lion's tail around the tree like, imagine if all the nature shows were yeah. and oh yeah, no no we can't see it no, yeah here's the, oh, oh it's right around I, trust me i just saw it and we see the shadow running away he said like Nobody would accept that from a nature show. He goes, why do we accept it from like super nature shows? Like it's not, it's the same thing with the aliens. Like why, when I've seen the clips of what are supposedly UFOs, it, um, a lot of them just look like uh, an equipment, like a, something to do with the equipment you're using to record this. Like I, for instance, there's this one time I was walking on Roy Street uh, you know, you know the Mexican place on Saint Dominic Roy. Yeah, you and Julie like going there. The uh, I was walking by there, and the sun was really low in the sky, and it happened to be like just shining, almost like a spotlight down the street, down Saint Dominic. And I was like, "Oh, that looks really cool." So I took a picture of it, and the picture came out really weird. It had like like six different strange spots of light. And he's like, it looked like very kind of supernatural. And I said to uh, to my, my friend Sebastian, who's a photographer and a videographer, I'm like, how come this picture it looks really cool, but that doesn't look anything like what I actually saw? And he said, yeah. He goes, well, 
basically, sometimes if you're taking a picture of certain kinds of light or certain kinds of things, it kind of messes with the apparatus of the actual camera. And so what you're seeing is an artifact, not of like what you were, it was there. It's actually, you're seeing like, this is an artifact of, of the way the camera works. And a lot of the UFO stuff seems to me like it's got to be just noise in the recording apparatus. Yeah. I mean, I mean there are, there, there's probably, there's something to figure out there because there are, you know, pilots that see things who, and some of these pilots, I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're, uh, you know, they're, um, top of their field and they're, you know, extremely, you know, skeptical and, you know, like there's gotta be, and, and there's, you know, there's not just visual artifacts, but there's radar images, uh, you know, probably there's some explanation for it or it's the Russians sending over hypersonic things or the Americans doing something, I don't know, or it's Elon Musk launching something we don't even, <laughs> some cool thing that we don't even know about. <laughs> I don't know. But, uh, yeah, but I, in the context of this book, though, I mean, I'm not saying that aliens don't exist. They, pro- they I'm, I am, I am absolutely positive that there are alien, you know, intelligence. You know, there's a lot of eyes up there looking down at us. Um, but in the context of them coming here and and flying around in little flying saucers and things, I don't know. Doesn't doesn't really make any sense. And things that don't make any sense, sort of say, well, why should we? You know, why would you believe in that? Yeah, well, something you've explored in a couple of your novels in the past, like I remember in Darknet you dealt with this, and in Passing in Cyberstorm and and um, Meet Your Maker, uh, you've explored this idea that like the aliens are here and it's our machines that we're building. And that those are actually things that, uh, you know, we talked about this with reference to like ethology and the study of animal behavior that like, Probably all animals have similar um, patterns of motivational structures and patterns of cognition, but right. that the the machines we're building right now actually have totally different ways of thinking. So they actually are the de facto are, the real aliens. There are, there are alien intelligences on on planet Earth, but I think they're the ones that we are actually creating the artificial intelligences, because I think. Um, no, pretty much all animal life on Earth uh, has a similar way of thinking and problem solving. Um, you know, even a slime mold, which is a single-celled organism, they have um, demonstrated how you can stick that into a maze in this single-celled organism with no brain and no intelligence, and, you know, no way that we can think of having intelligence, can actually go through and solve a maze puzzle and get to the food at the end of it. So that is a form of problem solving and intelligence um, exhibited by something as, you know, on a, a single-celled organism. And I think that that type of intelligence is shared by all animal life uh, on Earth from a very primitive level. But but you're right. When you talk about what what the aliens that are uh, on, the, the alien intelligence that are here are the machine intelligences, which, which we are building, which do not share that same fundamental type of intelligence that we have with all other animal life. Um, so I think those are the real... Those are the real aliens, and actually, in the book that 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 I wrote, that uh, Aeon Rising is the name of the book, um, we are using instead of artificial intelligence, it's alien intelligence, and it's, there's um, aliens that are propping up in our uh, in our digital infrastructure, and that's the the kind of the fun thing that we're having in this book. And by the way, 
The book actually doesn't start off about aliens. It actually starts off with a supernova exploding uh, <laughs> <laughs> about eight light years away, uh, almost directly over the uh, South Pole. So with about you know about eighty-seven degrees of, of declination and uh, celestial coordinates, but right over the uh, right over the point of the of the South Pole. Um, and that's how we start off the book. So we start off with a supernova exploding, and then things just get worse from there. I know a lot of uh, a lot of our listeners are really into you know what's called hard science fiction, and uh, just you know Matthew like <coughs> paid some scientists to actually crunch all these numbers. So it's it's actually all everything is like exactly right, <laughs> like implausible in terms of the what it would do and what it's like possible. Yeah. Well, I've done. Uh, in previous novels, I've done quite a few different apocalyptic scenarios from, you know, cyber attacks and things like that. And in, in this uh, novel, I'd, I've actually always been interested in the idea of supernovas um, because these are regular phenomenon. Um, in the last 2,000 years, so in sort of recorded history, if I could roughly call it 2,000 years, we've had eight supernovas that were visible to the naked eye. The last one was only in 1987, not that long ago. Um and so these are little bursts you'll see even in in like in the blue sky you'd see a bright you know a, bl- a bright shining thing appearing in the sky. The last really bright one was in the year 1054 um, when the a, a su- when the star went supernova, which is the Crab Nebula now, but it was visible as a big white blob in the sky for months. Um, but though the Crab Nebula is several hundred light years away, but Every now and then you end up having one that explodes um, much closer. So you have a local supernova. Um, and probably the, the second biggest mass extinction event on planet Earth, which is the Hagenberg event, uh, about 300 million years ago, was most likely caused by a, a star going supernova quite close by. And so it, um, it almost destroyed all life on Earth. Um, and is that then, the one that like killed off like ninety six percent of? Well, like, no, that was the per, the Permian extinction. Permian, right. That was a, a bigger one. That was probably volcanism. But the Hagenberg event was uh, the second biggest mass extinction, and that was most likely caused by supernova. And there was another one, but a smaller die off about two million years ago that killed megalodon sharks, uh, which was probably another local supernova. So stars do go supernova. You know, all around us, there's a you know a couple every uh, every century in the in the Milky Way, and then every now and then one tends to go off pretty close to the Earth, and uh, it will induce a mass extinction event. So, how did it kill the megalodons? Well, when you when you have a um, when a star goes supernova, uh, depending on the type of supernova it is, and this is another fun thing to dive in in the book. You know, there's type one, type one. And type one A, which are white dwarfs that go um, that, that go supernova. Type one and one A are are actually white dwarfs that go over the Chakasandra limit, and then suddenly they go over a criticality limit, and then they suddenly collapse and they explode. Um, and then type two are massive stars that collapse under their own weight, and then they collapse, and then they do a supernova explosion. You also have um, recent researches. There's not just two types of supernova. You also have something called electron-captured supernovas. You also have things called hypernovas, which are like 10 times more powerful than even the most powerful type 2 supernova. So there's all kinds of really interesting um, stuff when you get into exploding stars. Um, so, yeah, that, that's a, uh, that, that's something I played with, actually, in the novel. And uh, 
you don't you don't get to find out that there's some alien component to this until much later than all this. So, so what, would a, what would a big supernova do? Like, what could we expect well, from this particular right, right. disaster? Well, one of the things. Well, I mean, there's there's light and heat output. Um, one of the most damaging things, though, in the short term, is the um, uh, ionizing radiation. So, uh, some supernovas will put out gamma radiation, um, and then most of them will put out soft X rays. But when this, when gamma radiation, for instance, hits our um, upper atmosphere and hits the ozone layer, it'll induce nitrous oxides, which is basically um, it'll induce uh, in the in the upper troposphere and stratosphere, and then these nitrous oxides will become acid rain, um, and they'll also destroy the ozone layer. So the soft X rays will destroy the ozone layer, and they also have nitrous oxides formed. So you get like this this photochemical smog around the entire planet. Um, and then the energy output from the supernova, just this really bright star that, because uh, supernovas can ignite with the brightness of an entire galaxy for short periods of time. So they can be like, this star can be as bright as 100 billion stars for short periods of time. And so if you end up, if you have a planet like Earth nearby this thing, it'll just basically cook the planet. So it'll raise the temperature, um, it will destroy the ozone layer, it'll put these nitrous oxides into the atmosphere. So all kinds of things that are not healthy for life. <laughs> so there would be parts of the planet that would be too hot to actually, they would not be survivable anymore. Uh, yeah, for it humans. could change the temperature. I mean, I think the, the ozone, you know, destroying the ozone layer would be extremely damaging for most forms of life because then you'd just have, uh, as soon as you destroy the ozone layer, then you'd have the ultraviolet radiation from our own star, which would get down to the surface and would just um, completely destroy most plant life and animal life. Like that would be extremely damaging, and then the nitrous oxide. So acid rain, acid rain would end up changing the um, the pH level in the oceans. So you know, destroy most you know a lot of the life. It there'd just be a very sudden change. It wouldn't kill off all life. Earth is pretty resilient. You know, in in the past, you've had snowball Earth where the entire planet is frozen from one side to the other, and then mm-hmm. other times you have supernovas go off, and maybe the temperature goes up by seven degrees Celsius across the entire planet. Um, it will lead to massive die-offs, but you know, um, life always tends to 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 keep to come back. But after things like the Permian extinction, sometimes it took thirty million years for there to be more than just microbes crawling around on the surface of the Earth. Sometimes there's pretty big die-offs. Yeah, yeah, it's wild. I mean, there are. Um, I think what book was it? In Seven Eves, Neil Stevenson deals with a a scenario with where the where the the earth is like the surface is just all burned and cooked and basically life persists in the deep trenches in the ocean, like the really deep places and in like caves and in strange places like that. And you have these pockets of life and then that gradually repopulates the planet over a very long period of time. Yeah. You know, but humans are involved in it. Right. But, you know, there is, there is the question, you know, if if machines and AI are sort of like the alien intelligence already, I mean, is it possible? I mean, if it's if it's all happening digitally, is it possible that maybe the aliens that other people encounter or that we encounter are actually just like digital noise that we sent out? Like, I, I guess what I'm thinking about is. 
a couple of things. One of them is, this is a very sad story actually, but like a friend of mine who lives in Toronto, her, um, her son committed suicide, uh, number of years ago and he was teaching english in south korea and he fell in love with a girl there and they were very much in love for a little while and then i don't know she she broke up with him and he's very depressed and he ended up like jumping off a bridge but um she but this was this happened before email was like a really big thing and before and when phone long distance phone was expensive still and things like that. And so he would write letters home. So she got a call from the embassy, like in Seoul, uh, but then she kept getting like postcards and letters and packages from him for a couple of weeks after she knew that he was dead. And so I'm wondering like if we're sending out like messages and sending out like various kinds of things over huge distances. You know, I mean, Star Trek definitely like dealt with this a number of times, but like maybe we're getting, are we getting like messages or getting seeds from civilizations and species that no longer exist? Like maybe, maybe even their entire galaxy doesn't exist anymore and vice versa. Maybe we're sending out stuff that people are going to get later on. I, I don't know that. Yeah. Well, I mean the, uh, I think you're, you know, uh, even when you're looking up at the stars, if they're far enough away, the, the you know the, the the starlight that we're looking at could be from a star that's dead and gone, you know, millions of years ago. Just because the the light takes so long for for it to uh, to propagate through space, so um, I think what you're saying is, you know, could we be getting information from civilizations that are you know, long extinct. And I think this is, goes back to the, what we're talking about, the Drake equation is like how long the technological civilizations last for. Um, but the, the, the more fundamental issue, and this is the Fermi paradox is that even though we spent all of this time listening with the SETI, you know, SETI project and, and listening to all the different radio waves and everything we can from target stars that we think are very likely to have life around them. We haven't heard anything that sounds even remotely like, um, you know, another technological civilization out there. There could be a lot of reasons for that. It could be that one of my favorites is, you know, either they destroy themselves or very rapidly the civilization would, you know, go through an evol- evolution process where they would, you know, become, you know, uh, super intelligent digital life forms that would just transcend and become godlike and then suddenly have absolutely no interest in communicating with, uh, you know, regular life forms, which, you know, that's that's the stuff of science fiction, and Ben Bova loved writing about that stuff. Um, and that's also part of what I touch on in this novel, which is if you have these civilization, or if you had a civilization out there that was that advanced and could travel between the stars and do a, like, what interest would they have in us? And then what interest would they have here? Why would somebody try and, you know, what is the purpose of an alien invasion? And so I came up with my own rather nefarious explanation, which does make some sense. It makes a lot of, I've never (laughs) heard an explanation for this in any movie, novel, like anything that makes more sense than yours. Like it actually, you're like, okay, yeah, that I buy that. Like it actually makes, it doesn't require this ridiculous, like matrix, like, yeah, we're all batteries, like, like suspension of disbelief. Like it's actually like, oh yeah, they're coming for our oceans. And we're not telling you what the answer is because I want you to go. No, we're not going to, we're not going to tell you. But just, before I forget, like, 
When is the book um, available for pre-order? Oh, well, the book's out for pre-order now. It's going to be available on June 7th, which I think is going to be the date when this is uh, when this is going to be going out. So Probably, um, you'll yeah. be able to get look look for Aeon Rising on uh, on Amazon. Uh, uh, there's the audiobook, paperback, hardcover, you know, ebook. Everything's going to be out when the when this uh, broadcast goes out or the podcast. Yeah. Well, I, I one of the questions I always have with like aliens and I mean, we talked about this, but I, I've been thinking about it a lot the last couple of days, but is usually the way evolution works. And one of the things that makes the theory of evolution by natural selection so elegant is that it actually, it's so, it works so well that most biologists assume that if there's life anywhere else, it's evolving in the same way that it does here, because the it doesn't mean it's going to produce the same results, but it would proceed along the same logic. But generally speaking, what happens with organisms is they are in, they kind of converge and they cooperate and they kind of like, so, I mean, the classic example is if you have lions and at first they're solitary, like predators, like tigers or leopards, and they get bigger and stronger and they have their prey and their prey it evolves with them so the slow ones get picked off and so gradually speaking the gazelles or the whatever like impalas like get they're fast enough to get away from the lines when they're healthy but the old ones or the young ones or the sick ones get picked off selected right but then let's say the lions get like a massive like advantage where they start start hunting in groups like and at first it's just like a couple of like genetically related females and their babies working together. Okay, you do daycare, we'll go kill something. So now the the prey is having to deal with like one in front of you, one making noise over here, one hiding behind the bush. And so at first they have a huge advantage and they kill a lot of them. But pretty soon the prey kind of get wise to it. They get faster, sneakier. And then when the lions like bring in the males and they have like prides of lions so but this happens like in this kind of process together where they evolve together right and that's how they can both survive but when you have other situations this is sort of the theory which i have a lot of problems with of invasive species which i'm not crazy about but it does have it does make sense in a number of situations so if you suddenly have like a pride of lions that is introduced to somewhere where they have not been at all before, like South America. Uh, you know, when North America and South America, because of the continental drift, like were joined in Central America, suddenly all these plants and animals that had been disconnected for hundreds of millions of years were like connected again. And the North American predators just systematically in a very short amount of time rendered extinct most of the predators of South America because they were so much more fit. So if, if a pride of lions like is plopped into a new place, uh, they're going to have massive advantages over everything they're going to eat there, so much so that they'll probably just eat them to extinction. So I'm wondering, like, if we had like some alien life form that was super, super advanced, like, why wouldn't it just like completely destroy us like very very quickly well i mean it's a good question 
some things and some thoughts that I, that came to mind when you're describing that is, you know, I mean, do you think that human beings are actually still evolving right now? Because like all the pressures that you're talking about, which is like, you know, traditional uh, evolution requ- requires, you know, somebody to be eaten or killed or not be able to be fit. Humans aren't evolving in that way anymore. All the humans in our species that are not fit, we we give them, you know, social aid programs. To, you know, like, you know, we don't have the same... In once a society or once uh, an intelligent species, I think arises, the same type of evolutionary pressures don't don't apply anymore. Like I don't, th- I do not think that we are under the same like biological or genetic uh, evolution. But I do think we're undergoing mimetic evolution. Like so, the, you know, the idea of mimetics, the idea of, of ideas evolving, and so I think the more important battlefield for. Um, for humans right now is the evolution of ideas and the communication of those ideas. Once we started to develop language and then we started to develop the idea of like a wheel, like the concept of a wheel is like a, is a, is a, a you know, a mimetic unit of information. Um, then we could communicate that. Um, and as we wrote stuff down, we were able to communicate it further and faster. And then we developed the internet. And so we've having this, we've moved from, genetic evolution where the actual species and the organism is evolving to mimetic evolution where we're competing on on the basis of ideas and we're communicating those ideas faster and faster through digital space. And that's why I say I think that we are very rapidly evolving into digital organisms. Like the really the all the evolution that's happening with us really is happening in the digital space and the um and things like machine learning and artificial intelligence are just accelerating that. You know, and this is getting towards the idea of the singularity and the system stuff that we wrote about in some of my other books, you know, that we're approaching an asymptotic, you know, uh, uh, where the rate of change is going to keep increasing and increasing until we get to an infinite rate of change, and which is the which is the singularity. So I, I do think that that is actually probably a thing for, you know, so if we're talking about evolution and, and aliens, intelligent species, I think that that probably is like a common... That's probably a convergent evolutionary path that you would move towards some sort of singularity type phenomenon. Um, but the question is, once a species would cross over through that singularity, what interest would they have in, you know, in us, and how would they compete with us? You know, would they wipe us out? Maybe, but why would they? It'd be like it'd be like us saying that you want to run around and kill all the ants in an anthill, you know, like, why would you want to do that? Like, there's no, there's absolutely no interest for you in, in doing that unless you like to eat ants or something. But, um, yeah. So, uh, so I, these are the things that I thought about when I was actually writing about the aliens in this novel, that they've actually passed through this sort of phase, um, and they have a different way of looking at things. And they actually have a hypothesis for why they would come back here. Um, or why they would bother with us, which I'm not going to give away. Yeah, <laughs> it's very, well, I mean, I, I like one of the things that I find that's a little bit different about this novel from your previous ones. Well, maybe just you do more of it in this novel than in any of your previous ones is that like uh, Kurt Vonnegut or uh, Tom Robbins, the even cowgirls get the blues and stuff like that. You have like a lot of sort of kind of like, I don't know, like comedy or like these really sort of, interesting reflections on things that the characters talk about. And I, there's one in particular, I was wondering if you could just give our listeners like a little kind of glimpse into 
um, where you, where the character is talking about the Olympics oh. and about swimming, and it's what is the, the like you're talking about like why why is we don't have in in running oh, yeah. versus the different kinds of swimming. Events. Yeah, well, this is sort of just the banter when these so that in part of the novel, the um, some of the characters end up once one 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 of the storylines they end up getting stuck in the Amazon, um, and so they're humping through the the very steamy, wet Amazon rainforest and having to cross rivers and things. Um, and one of the characters gets into a whole uh, speech about, you know, why do we have four different types of swimming in the Olympics? You know, why is there breaststroke, you know, breaststroke, butterfly, front crawl, when you only have one type of running in the Olympics? Like, what <laughs> like you don't have, you know, the backwards run. And you don't have the, like, the, the forward centipede run. run, yeah. run yeah. The, like, like the, you've only got one kind of running because running, run, the, really? running is running is the fastest way to run. Yeah. They gave the example when they were crossing the river and they ended up, half of their party ended up getting killed by some nasty monsters following them that said nobody... Nobody that fell into the river suddenly busted out into the butterfly stroke. Like every <laughs> everybody just went straight into a front crawl when they're trying to get away from them. because a butterfly is not a useful stroke when you're trying to go fast. It's just not. Yeah, yeah. No, nobody in Ukraine is like pulling out samurai swords and like you know, yeah, to fight off the you, Russians. It's like right. not a not not anything anybody's going for. Yeah, there's. I mean, that's one of the elements I really liked in the novel is that I mean, you mentioned ten. 54 and these other where there's these big kind of crazy natural disasters or events and usually what comes from that sociologically is you get this big flowering of like QAnon type like conspiracy new religious cults all kinds of crazy I'm stuff sure, if you got I'm like sure the that, black death or so a supernova I'm sure that supernova in 1054 spawned some cults yes that's, yeah that's and so giant, you really I mean not to give away too much but from the, the novel sky. but you have, yes, you, know, you have cults in You world. have, like, you know, exactly what you would expect. The Knights of the Golden Dawn. From, yeah, from some, <laughs> some kind of, like, crazy event. Uh, and this is, this is just such an interesting vein to, you know, to sort of mine for literary gold all the time. I mean, what was the one, uh, The Leftovers? Did you ever, like, read that one? It was uh, the guy who wrote uh, Tom Perota. The guy who wrote like Little Children and things like that, but no, I didn't. His know. one of his they made it into like an HBO series yeah, called I'm... The Leftovers, but it's he decided he wanted to like play. So there's this in the novel. There's this like random event where a whole bunch of people just disappear. So it's like the rapture. Is, is, isn't described. This, isn't this like the MCU universe? Just Thanos wiping out half of them? Uh no, it's more <laughs> like sort of. Uh, just a number of people just randomly disappear and they're gone. Like, like, and you know, Christians automatically think this is like the rapture described in the Bible. And, but you know, people flying planes are suddenly not there and the planes crash cars no no longer have drivers, uh, like really weird stuff. Like, like a mother is like in, in labor, gives birth to a baby and then she's gone. And the baby's just like on the day. Like, really weird stuff and immediately all these like crazy cults and religious movements emerge with explanations for why this happened right and they you know they many of them are sort of like well they try and look for patterns like well was it all good people who were taken away 
was it all bad people that were taken away? And so, of course, like, you know, a lot of um, these sort of Christian-inspired groups say, oh, these were the saints. These were the elect that were taken away, and now we're going to live with the end times until Armageddon. But then there's a couple people who are, like, detectives who, who obsessively are, like, researching all the people who were raptured away, and they find, like, definitive proof that some of the people who were raptured away were, like, serial pedophiles and, like, murderers. And then some of them were incredibly good, nice people. So there's really, like, no reason to it. But this deep, deep human desire to try and make meaning out of chaos. And, see patterns. And tra- yeah, well, patterns I, I seeking. Think, I think and that you, is... And you have a lot of that in this novel where people are trying to make sense of... Well, for sure. I, I mean, I think that is... Um... You know, in the past couple of years, we seem to have, although conspiracy theories have been around from, you know, the John Birch Society, like it's been forever with us. We've always had, you know, secret societies and conspiracies. I, th- I think with the um, the advent of, of social media and all this, I think it's amplifying some of that stuff. But I think ultimately conspiracy theories are just an attempt to create some order from the chaos you know that i mean in my my own personal the opinion the pentaverat pentaverat <laughs> thanks for recommending that by the way that was so funny yeah poor mike Myers. i know he got he got slammed for that but I, I, know. I found a lot of it pretty funny i found it so funny i i actually you recommended it i had heard it like slammed on a number of, like canada land and we're like just like Give mike hating on it like mad <laughs> and but then you said it's actually really funny, and I found it absolutely hilarious. I ended up watching the last episode like twice because it was the, the one with like the where Netflix is trying to censor Mike Myers's like dick and stuff like that, and like oh my god, that was so hilarious. Sausage, <laughs> like, and the the global elite that runs everything in Davos, and they they have like their orgy, the global baby elite eating, tasting, everything. and like. <laughs> In a pizzeria basement and like, but yeah, I mean, it is this like really powerful desire, like, you know, Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, like he said, the people in the concentration camp who survived were the people who were able to come up with a narrative that explained what was happening. Even if the narrative was like complete nonsense, it's just the people who had an explanation were far more likely to survived than the people who didn't and that's that you know the the opening epigram of his book is that line from Nietzsche where he says like you know a man can endure um, any kind of suffering as long as he has an explanation for his suffering so like if you as long as you have like a story and you know there's some people in your novel that have some very wacky explanations for what's happening exactly exactly and uh yeah yeah I think I think conspiracies and and ultimately, there are you know, like there's conspiracy theories, but I think conspiracy theories become even more popular because there are actual conspiracies out there. Like, you know, this, you know, this Davos, you know, elites—they are actually running the world. <laughs> like, 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 there's, like, there's no doubt that these, you know, the super wealthy are actually guiding. You know, I don't, I, but I don't think it goes to the extent of them actually. In my experience, I've I've had a background in the in the corporate world and working with Fortune 500 companies and so on. And 
from that specific experience, I don't think that there's any like rich, wealthy, elite people out there that really are able to control more than, you know, it's just, it really is just chaos. And they're, those really rich elite people, they're just as dumb as, they're just as dumb as all the rest of us. Like they, they have some ability to influence things, but then things come back and bite them in the ass. And, you know, like it's just chaos. I think the world is just chaos. And I think, but that chaos, like you said, it creates this this um, anxiety because now there's no pattern, there's no reason for things happening, and I think that that is because and I've suffered from anxiety disorder myself in the past, and ultimately anxiety disorder is uh, because you have a sensation of loss of control, and so whatever to your point, whatever that you can do to regain that sense of control, even if it's not, even if the thing that you're making up doesn't make any sense but you creates a framework for you to be able to say that i have some sort of control and this is how the world makes sense i think reduces anxiety and i think that's a lot of what's happening with conspiracy theories and all and i always put a good dose of that in all my novels actually every every book that i write there's always like a few different groups and they're all competing with all different conspiracy theories about why this is happening and ultimately one of them is correct yeah (laughs) but you have to figure out which one of them actually has the right Actually, not actually. That's not true. I've written a couple of books where nobody was right, and the thing that actually happened was the thing that nobody thought of, which yeah. which is probably more accurate. Well, that's you know that's one of the things that I find really really interesting and and fun about about your novels is that like I'm I'm somebody that I I just don't I don't experience very much. I mean, it's not like I never feel anxious, but I don't experience a lot of anxiety. John, John doesn't have a lot of anxiety. <laughs> yeah, I can tell you that. I really, <laughs> I really don't. But And so for me, it's like, I mean, one of the amazing things about the narrative form period, storytelling form for humans, is that it allows you to sort of, sort of get, you know, that's the whole idea of like what Martha Nussbaum talks about, like the narrative imagination. It allows you to sort of get inside like somebody else's point of view and somebody else's perspective. And and one of the things that people get uh, from your novels, especially your uh, ones like Anne Rising and Cyberstorm, and I think Anne Rising is, is of all your novels, this is the one that's most like your, your super, super famous one, Cyberstorm, is Anne Rising, where it's just, you get to sort of feel what it's like to feel massive anxiety <laughs> like because it's so i find really getting into your your novels is just it's incredibly fun but it's like a really scary roller coaster like you're having a good time but it's scaring the shit out of you like you can't be like checking your phone like when you're on that roller coaster because it's really terrifying but i also i think like with anxiety my you know as a sort of an outsider to the phenomenon for the most part I've always got the impression from having family members and friends who've who've struggled with schizophrenia and psychosis, and I, I've always sort of imagined that that anxiety people who are really anxious seem to sort of come in two flavors for me. Uh, there's people who are very anxious about stuff that is highly implausible, if not just crazy, like. Like believing, I don't know, demons are infecting my tequila that I'm drinking right now and trying to kill me or something like, like something really crazy. Well, that's more schizophrenic. That's, that's one category of very anxious people. 
Then there's like another category. You're definitely in this category. There's another category of like anxious people where I think they're just smarter than most people and they just have like a good imagination where they actually can think about all the things that can go wrong. You know, like, and they, uh, like I, I, where I teach at John Abbott, the, we have a, an EMT program, like ambulance workers. And I've heard this from so many of my students who've gone through that program. They're like, after you've gone to, you know, 20, 30, like crack car crashes on the highways and you've seen like people raspberry jammed all over the highway and stuff like that. After you've seen these horrible things and you know all the things that can go wrong, you just, you tend to be much more alert. Like, I remember I was talking to this one guy. Uh, don't talk uh, on your, don't, don't get on your yeah, yeah, text yeah, messages yeah, yeah. So while you Like one of my former <laughs> students, John Fanaswai, he was saying like, he's like, I never answer calls in the phone. Uh, even on speakerphone, I never fuck around with my radio when I'm because I've been to so many like accident scenes. So, and I think to some extent, and I, you know, I understand maybe I'm slandering myself a little bit here, but like, <laughs> I think to some extent, like being devoid of anxiety is, um, I mean, it's fun for the person like me who is largely devoid of anxiety, but I think it actually, for the most part, signals some combination of uh, not enough imagination, <laughs> not enough intelligence, or at least in that way, because it's just, okay, to give you an example, they did this, uh, this wonderful study. I, I do suffer from, a, from, you know, just the anxiety of being, you know, in existence and like, how do we even like, how, how do we, how are we here and how life doesn't make any sense and the absurdity of, you know, well, the, the, re- the say- reason why people would hang themselves on the, on the, on the left bank of the Seine back in the, you know, Camus and all those guys. Like there's a, there's a certain anxiety that springs from just <laughs> being alive. Oh yeah. Know? Yeah. Like I remember talking to my cousin, he suffered from schizophrenia and like, I remember talking to him, um, about, <laughs> about like what he was afraid of and what he was anxious about. And he would tell me like things that he's, and I would say, well, that's like, that's like, you know, I'm, I'm sorry you're, you're feeling that. And that must be horrible to feel that and to think that, but that's not going to happen. Like, that's not real. Like, that's not absolutely not. But by contrast, to get my, my two categorizations here, when we've been on mountain walks and you are like feeling really anxious and you've told me like, I'm really freaked out because of like this, 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 this. My response is always like, and, and I realize maybe I'm like a shitty friend, but like my, my <laughs> response is usually like, oh God, yeah, that, yeah, that's, that's as bad as you think. That totally could Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. You could be really fucked is, there. That is a growth. Yeah, that, that is like yeah. Because so usually, like when you describe like all the stuff you're afraid of or you're worried about, it's like legitimate things that like are actually worrisome. It's so I think there's two categories of John, of anxiety. John shares in the worry for a couple of minutes and then gets to the pub. And- <laughs> All the worry goes away. All the, but it, it it just it seems to me like you know and, and you you know also, we've talked I about tend this to put before. Put myself in stupid positions, also. Well, yeah, but but also like if you if you're thinking about a bunch of things that could go wrong that are totally plausible, then you know maybe you're just sort of preparing yourself. I mean, supernovas do go off in the sky from time to time. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Not that you need to sit and look at the sky all the time and worry about it. Maybe you're so. I mean, I, well, we talked about this with your, you know, the last time you were on the podcast about how 
cautionary tales and disastrous scenarios are, you know, a lot of uh, psychologists believe that this is a way in which we prepare ourselves. I do, I do stock up water in my house. <laughs> you know, and it's, you know, there, there was one time, which I've mentioned to you before, where I, I very rarely have gotten bad dreams in my life. But there have been a couple of periods where I did. And the last time I did was when uh, Annalisa was pregnant with our firstborn, with Annika. And like, I had these... 20 years ago was the last time you were anxious. Well, like really, (laughs) like really, like, well, at least bad dreams, like bad dreams. But I remember like walking around in the dream and I was like, had the phone, like the cordless phone on like wedged between my shoulder and my ear and I'm holding the baby and I'm walking through a doorway and I accidentally hit the baby's head on the doorway and the baby's head just explodes like a blood brain water balloon, like, like all over. So this isn't a thing that actually happened. No, it was when she was pregnant and I, it was this terrifying dream. And I called up my mom and I was like really freaked out. I said, mom, like, I understand I'm having this dream. And she said, oh yeah, yeah. I had dreams like that all the time when I was pregnant with you. Uh, and she goes, she goes, I think it's just your brain is sort of like, preparing you to be really really mindful and really conscious and careful with this little thing because this thing's really delicate and it's preparing you like running through these simulations of horrible scenarios and and she said you know you've just told me i mean i just told you one with the mm-hmm. phone and thanks, walk- for, thanks for bringing this up john I'm, I'm about to have another baby in about four weeks with my wife so. <laughs> John's just making me less anxious right now. Just, Be careful thanks, when you're sir, walking yeah. through doorways. So, yeah, thanks, for, thanks for bringing up yeah. the, 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 bad, the, the baby's head exploding like a blood bag. That's just going to make my sleeps much easier now. Thanks, John. But, <laughs> we're going to be hitting the, uh, the like, lorazepam after this. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but doing lines of it off of the... Yeah. But, uh, but my mom said, she goes, you know, you said 10 stories and all of your bad dreams have the same theme, which is like, you're with the baby, you're not fully paying attention, and something bad happens. So this is, don't you see what the motif is? The motif is you are being like rewired to be, because you're, you're, you're a very like easygoing, chill person, and that's not compatible with being a good parent of a newborn. So you and she goes, I was the same thing, and so I was having bad dreams about like things happening to you, and that was just me preparing myself, you know. To and I remember the, the first time I told you about this a couple there years also ago. Also, babies being born in the book. So yes. Oh, <laughs> I wish we could spoil that one. Oh, that is like, there is a pregnant woman trying to survive oh, through the supernova. Oh my god! Yeah, that is like some of that is some of the most difficult reading I think I have. Like you really went for it there. But anyway, um, the, yeah. And, and so I remember when I, I told you about this a couple of years ago, you're, you said, well, I think that we tell each other like this almost insatiable desire we have for disaster stories and for is as a culture, we're as a, as a people, we're running through all these simulations of bad stuff that could happen as a way of trying to prepare for it. Oh Yeah. I'm sure. I mean, as we just went through a global pandemic, you know, which was, um, which is something that I've been writing about for, you know, 12, 12 years now. It's actually funny in, in my novel, um, Cyberstorm, which I wrote 10 years ago, um, at the beginning of it, they think there is a viral outbreak. Um, 
and it's just I'm just going to tell you this is funny. But I had a comment. The last one of the last reviews that was written on the book, somebody said, "Well, this person must have gone back and and rewritten the book because they're talking about N95 masks and all this <laughs> stuff." And I I can't write back comments, you know, to people on on Amazon. I'll leave them, but I'm like, do people not know there were actually, you know, like the idea of not coughing on other people and 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 like N95 masks, these things existed <laughs> like like 10 years ago, you know, like this was all real things, you know, like this, all the stuff that the, um, that they, they, they told us to do to try and mitigate, uh, you know, infectious disease, respiratory infectious diseases. This, this is not just stuff that we just made up during the pandemic. Like this was stuff I wrote about 10 years ago. Like this is the standard way to, you know, the standard way of, uh, of, of handling things. But it's just so funny how some people who read that stuff, especially kind of more right-wing in, in America, they read that stuff and say, oh, you're just pandering to what just happened. No, it's like, no, I actually wrote this stuff 10 or 12 years ago. This was the standard way of dealing with stuff, you know. They didn't, yeah. they didn't just make this stuff up. Yeah, there's a wonderful essay that Margaret Atwood wrote um, We're just two, two years ago. Time. Yeah, two years ago where... She's talking about like, um, you know, since she she wrote that the Handmaid's Tale came out in like 1984 or like 19. It's like really, it's been out for yeah, a yeah. long. time. That was time. one of my favorite books, dystopian novels. Yeah, and and so many people have over the years said, "Oh wow, Margaret Atwood has like a crystal ball. How did she see the future? She was so prophetic." And she addresses this in this essay she wrote, like just it was like two years ago, and it's included in her new. Um, her new collection of, of writings like called burning questions, which is fantastic. But she says, like, she says the same thing that you said, you wanted to say to this like commentator, she's like, I have no crystal ball. I have no capacity for prophecy. All like people who write dystopian fiction or, or thrillers or kind of, you just look at what's actually happening and you look at, okay, if this continues in this direction, where could it go to? If this continues, you just follow things and so I just like followed the logical. I I did. I had a logical conclusion. Yeah, I yeah. like no capacity for prophecy whatsoever. It's like okay. Uh, and she said, you know, actually one of the things she said she goes, I don't do this for all of my novels, but I did it for The Handmaid's Tale that I made as a, a limiting rule when I was writing that novel was I would not include absolutely anything that has not actually happened somewhere in human history, documented. So I wouldn't include anything that hasn't already happened somewhere at some point. So that's all the things that happened there. And the movements, it was based on, you know, the, the sort of the, the Islamic revolution in, in Iran with the, over, with the mullahs taking over. With, with, you know, it was all stuff that has actually happened already in the past. And I was just saying, okay, if the obsession with like controlling women's bodies and reproduction continues and the rise of the Christian right in the United States. And if, if various things like move towards a theocracy in the United States, what would that look like? And I didn't use my imagination at all. I just used history books. And so I think, yeah, I mean, a lot of your stuff is the same. I, I want to finish with a question that one of our listeners sent me. Um, after the last time you were on the podcast, mm-hmm. and and it's a very good question. Actually, said um, you know I I did some research into Matthew Mather. I've bought two of his books, and I noticed that 
I was surprised that he's not trained as like, I don't know, like a creative literature, like or whatever creative writing or English lit that he's actually trained as an engineer. And he was like, had was starting tech startups and was like a computer guy and everything. And so the, the question was, I, I can't remember exactly. It's my phone, but like it was um, basically to what extent do you think that you're training as like an engineer and kind of a science nerdy guy? Like how has that, do you think affected the way that you write fiction? Um, yeah. So, I mean, that observation that your, um, that your, uh, that your listener made is, is accurate in that, um, like I never trained to be a writer, but of all the writers, I do know a lot of writers now, like I've got, you know, 20 or sort of 20 or 30 of the, of the top science fiction and dystopian writers, um, on Amazon right now are all friends of mine. And we all talk, um, you know, we cross promote and we have a lot of pretty close discussions, but I think out of all those 30, I think maybe one out of 30 of them, uh, actually studied like literature or, you know, so like 29, like 95% of people that make a living, like full-time living out of writing were never, Intending to be, uh, we're never writers. Writers are really, uh, or novelists tend to be a real mixed bag of nuts. Um, you know, so I think, I think in terms of that, my own experience is not uncommon, but it's more actually, it's more common to just writers of novels tend to come from all kinds of walks of life or the successful ones. Um, and to what extent is it? Well, I, I think. In terms of the stuff that I write about, um, you know, I, I'm so my engineering background. Every time I write a book, there's two types of writers actually. Um, there's the pansters and then there's the plotters. And the pansters are the ones like Lee Child who just go in and um, make up a story on the fly and and see where it takes them and give their characters agency. And then there's the plotters who are people like me that carefully and and Jeffrey Deaver also. I sat in a panel with him. He was the, he did the Bone Collector and one of those thrillers but um we tend to meticulously plot everything out like this huge structure and then let the story move through that structure so as an engineer um my training was in structure and and the plotting and all that sort of stuff so i'm very much a, a plotter when it comes to novels and i think all the background with the engineering the technical background and especially the physics you know i did a degree in electrical engineering so the um you know, being able to understand the physics and and the, um, the sort of the science behind some of these topics, I think, is a, is a great well lends, I guess, lends some realism because I always try to make my books as realistic as possible, even when we're dealing with things like aliens. <laughs> but I try to lend, a, you know, sort of a make it as plausible sh- as possible. Make it as plausible as possible. Um, that's always a big thing in my novels to make things as plausible as possible and not you know, end up having a matrix solution where they're being, they're, they're turning human bodies into batteries. Although that was kind of secondary. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I remember like the first time I went to your, your like man cave in the sky, your like writer studio where you have like, just for the listeners, it looks like in a, in a movie or a show where there's like the detectives and they have like the the whiteboards and the blackboards with like you know the links with here's the crime boss and here's his capos and they like this is it's just 
all this it is very technical it's like okay when you're mapping out a novel it's like you know the microfilm and there's the, there's the formula it's like all it's very spatial and very kind of like, like mapped like out a giant conspiracy theory with, <laughs> with strings written in between everything yeah. but it, it's good because if you pay attention it's and you have a if you have a like oh i know a lot of like literary types <laughs> who just sort of sit in cafe and wait for inspiration and they they kind of they see it more as like like almost like a, a religious thing where you wait for the lightning bolt to hit you and then you write because whereas like the impression i got from looking at your process is it's it's much more like somebody trying to cure cancer or solve a murder it's like it's very sort of methodical and technical and Oh yeah, I think that also the type. I always try to write my novels as uh, as mysteries. I, I, I my personal um, view on well, I, like I'm not trying to be Dostoevsky or write literary fiction. So the only reason why people are read is because there's a central mystery, and so in a perfectly structured novel, for me, you bring up the mystery at the beginning, and then you keep on you keep on asking you know bringing up more mysteries and more interest and and then delaying answering those and ultimately you answer in a perfectly constructed novel that i would write i would end up answering the central mystery only on the very last page because that's as soon as the central mystery is answered in a, in a in a novel i think that's when the reader stops reading so if you can keep them reading all the way to the end um so that's just a little bit into my process i i um I like to to structure it like that, bring up the mysteries and then answer at the end. So it's all kind of constructed in a way, um, but it's constructed in a way that's a little bit misleading or I wouldn't say misleading, but, you know, I'm trying to lead, I'm trying to always give the reader five different paths and you have to try and decide which one you pick. And I was going to, actually, I think we brought this up in the last, um, last time we're doing a podcast, but I view writing a good novel as like up close magic where everybody can see all the cards and you can see everything you're doing. And they've got to guess. The readers always. You're always trying to get the reader to guess the wrong answer, but make it make sense at the end. And that's. Uh, I think that's a well constructed novel. Yeah, it is, and and that's one of the things. You know, one of the many things I like about your novels is you don't have this like this random. Oh, it was all a dream, or like yeah. you know, the like, kind of the it's silly like the have. cheap, the cheap like tricks where they like they say like, oh, you know, we, like you don't do those cheap tricks. It's like when there's big reveals, you have that aha moment. Oh, right. Because she yeah, said that. And try he and did that. that. Oh, right. How did I miss that? So it's like the New York, New York Times like Sunday crossword puzzle. It's like, it'll kick your ass, but it is solvable. It's like, it's not like you can't do it. It's just, well, it, no, I it's do. difficult. I do. I do have quite a few readers, but that's sort of the fun also of reading a book like that is... Sometimes they will figure it out, and then good for them if they if they figure it out. But that's sort of the fun of of uh, twisting and turning, and uh, yeah, that's the way I like to write books. All right, well, I encourage all, right. all of you to go pre-order uh, Matthew well, Mather's novel. Buy it. You can actually buy it as of today. Yeah, that's what I mean. You can like you can buy it, and then it, On like Amazon, you'll, yeah. you won't get it till June fourth, June seventh, June seventh. But, but by the time this goes out, it's going to be June seventh. Oh, that's awesome. Well. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I know uh, you're feeling a little under the weather, and so this was like you you were behaving like a Matthew Mather character, soldiering on through the apocalypse. <laughs> Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, thanks again. Thank you. Come again. <laughs>